Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello to all our listeners. We're so grateful you've found us for this, another episode of In the Landscape, mm-hmm. coming to you from our recording studio. I am your host, Kate Sadler, and with me is our other host, Charles Sadler. Hi, Charles. <laughs> good to be here. It is good to be here. It's nice to have our recording routine. Mm-hmm. We are, I won't, sheltering in place. I, you know, we're observing social distancing as we're meant to. And so mm-hmm. it's really nice to have an opportunity to do something that feels productive and like a positive contribution to the world in its own modest, modest way and gives us something to do. That's right. <laughs> to think about on this. It's actually a rainy day here. I'm always sharing what the weather's like, but as landscape enthusiasts, I can imagine some of our listeners are as attuned to the weather. And we could describe the view out of the studio. We have a live oak or some live oaks mm-hmm. and those, they more or less drop it's to be confirmed, but almost all their leaves in the spring and then the new leaves come out. So it's an evergreen, but it does appear like it's going to drop. I'm not sure if it's all the leaves or if it's most of them. But yeah, yeah it's but, like this concurrent turnover so that the new leaves, I think, are emerging while the other leaves are dropping, which certainly right. does give it the appearance of being evergreen. It's very um, lush. The, the branches, there's one practically touching the window. It grows mm. sort of this pendulous <laughs> as it's rainy and a little overcast here in Texas. It's very pretty, the dark green, the older leaves are darker green, the new ones are lighter. Yeah, it's nice to think about that pattern of rejuvenation that we get to see in the spring. Mm-hmm. And to really study Shoots the plants. emerging from the ground and the, the emergence of new leaves um, for, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. And I suppose our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere are actually starting to, to experience some of the um, seasonal features of their fall. Oh, right. Um, so I ho- we hope that's going nicely for you. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those rainy, thundery days here in uh, southern Texas <laughs> that we are experiencing. So it's nice to be having some tea and staying cozy and thinking about plants and the landscape and how we take care of them. And we thought we'd go on a topic that is a special part of your practice in particular and something that will Maybe be of interest to some of our listeners if they if they're less familiar with this style of pruning and shaping and and training plants. We're going to talk all about cloud gardens today. So head in the clouds. <laughs> Before we get to that, you know, we have started to get some inquiries from folks who are interested in their own in beginning their own vegetable gardens. I think there is a mm-hmm. sense of agency and utility when we have vegetable gardens that are starting to produce food for us to to live on as I guess the reality of our interconnectedness sets in and the thought that whereas we are dependent on supply chains it's still a dependence on something we don't have a whole lot of control over Mm -hmm. not that we have a whole lot of control over anything really not to mention (laughs) like rabbits or squirrels eating our food in the garden but for those who are not sure where to even begin um, we have an episode farther back in our catalog called The Edible Garden. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, information on our website, as well as some online classes that start at the very, very beginning. So there's still time here to start considering your vegetable garden. I know that uh, during World War II in in Britain, the the Victory Victory Garden Garden was a huge part of the effort to, to sustain folks. I'm sure almost like spiritually and emotionally as well as just in terms of sheer sustenance. And it was to some extent, it was that same principle was adopted in the United States. 
Yeah. So a special legacy there. When we're not sure what to do in tough times, we plant gardens and we harvest vegetables. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a beautiful cycle there. So in addition to that, we actually have another online class that's going to get rolled out here pretty soon in Mm -hmm. April, all about boxwood pruning. And so for those of our listeners who found us, because we do somehow focus on boxwood quite a bit, this will be a, a class that will have a few modules that will step people through all kinds of care considerations, designing with it, planting it, then pruning and, and caring for it. So mm-hmm. we're excited to be developing that. Why to share our expertise? Absolutely. So I mentioned clouds and there's some history and some definition that you have for us. I just remembered actually We haven't had to do any corrections recently, and so I I forget to even open the floor for that. Mm -hmm. But we do have an update for our listeners who may have heard us in our volunteer episode refer to a beautiful garden here in west of Houston called, formerly called the Peckerwood Garden. Mm -hmm. And so you'll hear us in that episode refer to it by its old name all over the place because we hadn't yet been alerted to the name change. But the board of that garden recently updated the name to reflect the legacy of its founder. Oh, right. So that's the artist John Ferry. So it's now called officially the John Ferry Garden. And that's Mm -hmm. F-A-I-R-E-Y. And uh, they made this announcement just shortly this spring before he passed. And Mm -hmm. so they will be honoring his life and his legacy just as soon as it's safe to do so. It was uh, a very special change, I'm sure, for him to have been aware of just mm-hmm. in time. And so right. we just wanted to make that update. So you'll hear us <laughs> if we refer to it again from here on out as the John Ferry Garden, where we both hope to do some more volunteering once that's possible. Uh, just a real quick snippet about him. One of the particularly special combinations of his skill is the artistic layout of the gardens. They're very beautiful. There's contrast, seasonal interest, variety, and then the incredible There's many rare plants that are from some of these remote places in Mexico and other places in the world, Asia. But some of these collecting trips he and other horticulturalists went on, that's quite remarkable. The plants that may only be found in this garden is where they emerge into the trade through their collecting trips. So, yeah, so they were real, very adventurous, you know, to visit very remote places. You can imagine where the very steep terrain, rocky, dry, hot that collect these special plants that are now shared with the world because of that, that effort. I'm sure our plant enthusiast listeners can relate. There's <laughs> no mountain is too high to get that special, <laughs> special specimen for your garden. There's always time to visit one more nursery. Yeah, right? absolutely. Right. And it's not, not, not as hard for many of us as going into those arroyos and <laughs> searching for special seeds, but the passion is still there. So, mm-hmm. all right. So clouds, what do, you, what do you have to tell us about the cloud shape and where it came from and who uses it primarily? And I mean, like with lots of gardens, there's the, there's the cultural overlay of a garden. It exists in society made by people. So there's often many sources. And so when I share something, it's based on what my knowledge, but uh, it's often limited. So the Royal Horticultural Society in the UK, that's a great source of education, publishing, you name it. So they define a cloud. Cloud pruning is a Japanese method of training trees and shrubs into shapes resembling clouds. It is known as nowaki, the translation of which is garden tree. 
The style is said to depict the distilled essence of the tree. This type of pruning does not have to be used in solely Japanese style gardens. It can be used as a feature in gardens of many different styles. So that's like with a term, an artistic term like that, like when when I say a cloud garden, I'm generally not describing a single tree with clouds. So what they're describing to some extent is more a tree where the, the foliage is pruned into these sort of pads, these layers. A garden that has those elements, that would be called a cloud garden. Uh, Jacques uh, Verts from uh, Europe, I believe it's Belgium. So his style really popularized what I would consider, like when I say cloud garden, that's what I mean, where it's boxwood, holly, or another plant that are more or less pruned in a naturalistic manner. So it's like whatever the shape of the plant is, you're accentuating through shearing and pruning. And it has these undulation pillows, which create a a cloud-like form. Great. So what are some of the tools you recommend listeners have on hand before they attempt to start shaping things in this way? And is it something you can just go in and start cutting and it's going to look like the finished product? Or is it something you have to do season after season to kind of coax it along? Uh, Good question. So the, the tools are important. I do this work. I'm more or less continually working on cloud gardens throughout North America where it'd be a mature garden. So with a mature garden, you'd want to have topiary shears. So like very high quality shears that are more or less just pruning the new growth. Since it's a, an auditory medium, what do shears look like? It- oh, good question. So they, they'd often have wooden handles. So the handles could be from, let's say, 15 inches to 30 inches, 45. Or there's a, in some cases, the handles are very long. So you have the reach and the blades would be 12, 16, inch, 18 inches long, more or less. So it's, I think one of my favorite pairs, I think the total length is about 30 inches and the blades are like a little less than half that. So you use both hands in kind of a scissoring motion Correct. to get the action of the shears. Yeah, yeah that's a really good to visualize. And uh, hand pruners or secateurs, that's for this more or less pruning the bigger growth in smaller portions. So if there's a bigger shoot, that would be too big to use the shears on. When it's relatively developed, you can use the shears. As it's developing, there's like a rougher grade head shears, like you might buy at a hardware store. That should be a little bulkier, but also could make bigger cuts. When you're developing a hedge, or if it's overgrown, a cloud garden, I often use those where you can, it can handle bigger cuts. So the finished look is is a little rough. So I like to to rough it out with the, with the more with a coarser tool, and then you can refine it with the hand pruners, the secateurs, or the finer topiary shears. And would you use the technique of hand thinning, like we've used, you know, in just a normal hedge? Would you use that as well with the cloud hedge? Oh, you certainly would, because it's more or less when you shear, there's going to be areas which get denser. So where it gets denser over a period of time, it's going to get thinner actually. So there's going to be lots of wood, but not a lot of leaves over time. So the thinning, you're more or less removing areas that are very dense with growth. And what you want to allow for is more or less like a crop. If you're, it was agriculture, you'd always want a new crop of whatever you're growing. So with topiary cloud pruning, you want a new crop of, of fine leaves. So the thinning allows sunlight into the inside of the plant, and then you get the new growth emerges from the inside 
And you often don't have to shear it because it's, it's more or less like the inside of the canopy. Now, is this an effect that you can achieve just by buying individual plants and sticking them together in a shape? Uh, correct. So the, in some of the very old gardens in Europe, these are the places I'm aware of them, in Asia, particularly Japan and in Europe, there are very old gardens where it could be a plant that's hundreds of years old and it's a single plant has developed many different tiers and pads and clouds within a, so the plant might be six, eight feet wide by six feet tall. An approach that's become popular is, as you described, assembling many plants to create a, a cloud. So there might be a plant that starts off at five feet tall, like for some of the gardens that we've built, to give that cloud effect with new plants, you need a lot of sized plants. So there might be a plant that's stouter, um, then there would be some upright ones, and then be medium-sized ones, and then some very small ones. And so assembled, it starts to create that cloud form, and then those plants grow together to some extent over time. And that's all part of the design process. If it's, it can be planted so it looks full-grown immediately, or it can be planted where over a certain period of time, three years, five years, those plants grow together and form those clouds. So in terms of the form, is there a design aesthetic that sort of governs how knobby it is, or is it usually dictated by the plants themselves? You know, good question. There's, like within any art form, there are different styles. So there's some cloud garden styles where you can really discern the individual plants, even if it's very old. There are others where the plant, individual plant forms are completely obscure. You have no idea where the plants are. There's just this amorphous shape. Like if you think of a, of a very, of a candle where the wax has accumulated, it's dripped down and it's this undulating like a waterfall. So it can be very amorphous like that. And then there's all different grades where it's, there's areas where you can, like the style I prefer is some of the shapes grow together and then some are distinct. So there's, so there's contrast. What types of plants are suitable for this? So we talk about boxwood a lot, or box, as they say in some parts of the <laughs> world. What else might be a good candidate for this kind of shaping? Well, I mean, I definitely have my own experience on the, what I'm going to share, the Royal Horticulture uh, Society cites box, yew, Japanese privet, Japanese holly. Here in Texas, there's a, a dwarf yopan holly, which is looks similar to a Japanese holly, where the leaves are they're about the size of your pinky nail. So the I've been on other projects where a pittosporum is a common subtropic plant with a, it's a compound leaf. It looks a little like the house to me a house plant. Uh, there's a house plant called Shafalera that I've used for bonsai and other things. So it's it's a compound leaf like that. That's really a like a, like a good point, the, the size of the leaf, if you had a small cloud garden, let's say it's in a planter outside your window, and it's three or four feet long and a foot or two tall, you're going to generally want small leaves. So it reads, you can see the form. I've been on projects where pittosporum was used. Well, those are, it's a pretty coarse leaf. I mean, the, the leaflet would be about as big as, as your four fingers. But for a big area, let's say like the one I'm imagining, the plants were probably about six feet tall and 75 feet long with this undulating. And so 
a larger leaf can work if the grouping of clouds is bigger. How would you use this in terms of design in the larger landscape? Is it a backdrop for, you know, sculpture? Would you have something more dramatic and angular in the view as well? What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. It's, I guess, in my design work and in the greater world of design, I think the cloud garden, it's so popular. It's because it's so versatile. So it can be, there's like properties that we've worked on in the Northeast where the cloud garden, there was more, there was hedges in, in the vicinity of it and lawn and a swimming pool. It's, but the cloud garden was the star of the show. There were no flowers, there were no really, there were planters, but more or less no flowers. So that would be one approach. It can be, it's, it's a beautiful black backdrop for sculpture because it's more or less this organic naturalistic shape. So it could create a contrast for sculpture. So it could work that way. Some European designers, you, like Tom Stewart Smith, his work is very popular. It's, it's used with, in conjunction with a perennial garden, where it's this evergreen, like you described, backdrop, this really structural element. And then the very temporal grasses and perennials that move in the wind that have a, that, that have a kinetic element. It's a, it can be a great contrast for that. Now, in terms of, so if any of our listeners came to hear more about the, the first type we mentioned, where it's like pads that are sort of shaped into, or individual trees on which these pads are sort of developed, Correct. what type of species of plant would that be? And do you have any advice for how you would achieve that as well? Well, Japanese holly are used quite a bit. I mean, the Japanese maples are used. It's, it's harder to achieve that because it's like a coarser leaf. So plants that grow slowly. So the Japanese holly, I would say, is about the best to create a tree form cloud. It's a balance of you want it to grow because if it grows too slowly, it'll take forever to develop. But a plant that grows too quickly, it's going to require a lot of pruning. Well, you would lose that the, right. the effect quickly each time. So that's even a point to go into. There are cloud gardens I've worked on where it was a dwarf slow growing boxwood, like an English boxwood, which would be Buxus sephruticosa. Uh, so those grow very slowly. So it's, it would require very little pruning, but it's going to grow slowly. So for some, if it's, let's say it's a courtyard garden, an urban area was a small area. So a, a slow growing plant, like a dwarf uh, of some type, that could be a great choice where the Japanese boxwood here in Texas, that's used quite a bit. It's uh, resistant, to my knowledge, it's, res- it's about the most resistant to blight. It can handle the very high temperatures of 100 degrees Fahrenheit for prolonged times. It grows pretty quickly, though, it gets, so it can get a little leggy. So it's a little higher maintenance than some of the other types of boxwood. Well, but if you come upon, as we have, old English boxwood, that's sort of out of shape and you're trying to coax it back into this shape because it's so slow growing. What is your approach? Is it aggressive? And then you just sort of let the chips fall or do you have to oh, good point. work, you know, <laughs> slowly, but over seasons to kind of help it get into shape? What, how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah. I can think of a number of projects where there's been like slow growing, very old boxwood like that were probably about a hundred years or more. That these boxwood clouds. Mm. So 
It's the same how a design is a conversation with the client and what their goals are, what the timing of the work, how it's going to be maintained. So when there's a rejuvenation project, I also had that conversation. Can you live with it looking sort of rough for two or three years? But at that end of that time, it's going to look great. It will be fertilized. There'll be lots of new growth. Or, I mean, I've, like this spring, I've worked on projects where there's some areas where it's not as high visibility. So we can allow, we can take a little more drastic measures. It's the plant's still perfectly healthy, going from more or less rejuvenating in fewer steps. But the transition is not going to be as, there's going to be a period where it's a little rough. In more high visibility areas, you can pull back a little and say, three times a year, we're going to do some thinning and pruning. And it'll maybe take three years. It's going to be more, more pruning. And so you more or less get to the same spot. It'll take more effort, but there won't be a, a period where it looks thin or disheveled, more or less. <laughs> so I'm wondering if as you are doing this practice, how important is it to step back and evaluate? Do you ever use lines to kind of guide what you're doing? I know when we're doing strict forms, we often use a lot of lines, maybe even a cutout form if it's a specific right. topiary shape. This is so free form. How do you kind of assess whether you've done it in a way that's going to be visually pleasing or not? I could just see kind of being up close and not quite getting it right. Oh, stepping back. Yeah. And so, I mean, part of our practice is train. I mean, it's like a growing part of our practice is training others. That could be horticulturalists, directors, you know, people that are supervising others at all different levels. So projects that I've worked on to step away. And so you're working on, it would depend on the scale of it and then where you're seeing it from too. So if it's like a townhouse garden, some urban projects, maybe you see that this cloud section from above, maybe that's like, a, that could be a key feature of it. Actually, if you can step away, some of these projects are, it's a very big property. And so you can step away. I mean, the first step would be like 10 feet away, which might be how you'd experience it when you're walking. And then subsequently step further, 30 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet. So it's a lot like our advice in a lot of cases is, you know, assess it from the several views from which it will be seen and kind of assess what the program of the space is to see Mm. how you're going to experience this shape, you know, in real time. Yeah, very good point. And the time of the light, too, when I do the trainings, like some of the key questions are, where is it being seen from? If it's a public garden, a private garden, like I know where people are going to, and then where's the sun coming from? So in some properties, the, there's often trees, which are of course beautiful, and the clouds really lend themselves this undulating organic form on the ground. There's a nice reciprocity with the organic shape of tree branches and a tree canopy. The tree canopy can shade the clouds. So I mean, the first step would be, what can we do to the clouds to make it as healthy and as full as possible? Once you've done that, you can't do any more, and it's still not enough sunlight, then thinning the canopy of the trees overhead. So it's, I like to use the term when there's redundant branches. So there's, you more or less don't want to make, create a hole in, in, in the canopy of a tree. But if there's branches that are on top of each other, if one of them was removed or thinned, so the goal is always to make sure the tree is healthy but there's a way to let in more sunlight. It's interesting you bring up light. What, what struck me was one of the, I 
think it's the architect. So you've read a biography on Lewis Kahn. Mm, oh, right. And the and just the idea that shadow is a design element. Mm-hmm. So however you shape those clouds, as the light is changing in the seasons and throughout the day, would could be very beautifully kind of playing with the, that the clouds are not just this like sort of flat form that there is probably an interplay of shadow in there as well. Oh, right. That's, I know, projects that we're, we continue to work on. So you can imagine if, if a cloud is, is more or less a hedge off and it's, it's linear in some fashion. So I like the most interest possible. So the front of the hedge, if you were like, it should undulate. So it's not, uh, so in some cases, I've removed plants. So it did undulate more. So it's when you looked down the hedge, there's gaps. Like if you were missing a tooth, imagine there'd be a very deep shadow where your tooth is missing. And so on a person, of course, <laughs> it's not so appealing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't aim for that. But with the cloud garden, the this spontaneous, unexpected, you are aiming for that. And so having more or less where it looks like a plant is missing creates a deep shadow. And so up close, that adds some interest from a distance that really adds depth and so looking at it from many different angles. Now, um, kind of along the same lines, and I think there's a hedge style. I certainly don't know the name of it, but you don't use the same plant in every part of the hedge. There's a lot of, oh, right. so very often with hedges, we're looking, we are looking for uniformity, but could you be using like variegated boxwood or lighter greens and darker greens to sort of achieve a certain effect? Or is that not really then in keeping with this style? Well, that's, a, that's a really good. We've had requests for that. I think it's, I mean, it's done in some European gardens, maybe Asian gardens. It's called a tapestry hedge, where you might have, it's something like with azaleas, where you'd have 13 different colors of azaleas. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it has to be done very sensitively, but it's a, you can imagine this undulating rainbow color in the spring. So that'd be an example. The foliage would look about the same when it's green, but the flowers would, would vary. So that'd be an example with azaleas. You could have color. So an, an azalea, that's used in Japan quite a bit. I mean, that, I happen to know, I happen to study Japanese gardens. So that's an area I'm more familiar with. It, there may be other garden styles that use that also. Mixing different varieties of plants and foliage and color, that can certainly be done. It would be like with cooking. It's, to keep it simple, it's going to be pretty safe. And the chances of error are pretty low. There's always, there's experimentation. And so using a variegated boxwood intermittently, that could be very exciting. And you could try it out. What can look a little cumbersome is if the size of the leaves vary a lot. Like if you had a very small leaf, like a hot, like a Japanese holly, and then you had a pretty big leaf, like a skip laurel or rhododendron, that could look, if it was in the cloud form, that might look a little awkward. But, the, but plants can be adjacent to the cloud offer a lot of like a backdrop of a large foliage plant and then the clouds in front of it that can be very nice so are there any other design considerations that we should be aware of well let's see what we want to replicate with some of these gardens that i've helped you know where it's an ongoing design process to develop them the front of the bed to undulate adds interest as you look down the top of the plants that should undulate too so if there's Let's say the highest point is five feet, and then there's places where it dips down to four feet. When you look down the hedge, I mean, the cloud garden to me, it should not be uniform. 
So it doesn't want to look scattered, but there wants to be sort of unexpected variety. So if there were the high points were, let's say, uh, five or six feet, you wouldn't want those all lined up. So maybe there's a group of three that are that height, then it dips down. Then there's one that's offset. So it more or less emulating shapes in nature, like you'd see when you're hiking, mountain ranges are generally not uniform. And then having like one process we've used when there's a group of plants that are all about the same height to differentiate those. So some can be cut down very, maybe to 12 inches. So it's, it's a real contrast. And then there's medium height, taller. So it's your eye more or less sees the variety. What you, what you don't want is uniformity. It's, it's, it's quite hard to achieve, actually. There's, when plants come from a grower, they're very uniform. And so it's really a process of, uh, I mean, some of these cloud gardens, it's maybe five, seven, ten years. Now, during that period of time, it can be very beautiful, but to really develop it, it can take quite a while. Great. Well, I think that's been very informative and hopefully soothing. <laughs> Maybe that was the purpose of today. It was just to do a topic that was not not too, I don't know, not too much. Keeping just, it light. Yeah. It's a, it's a soothing form. It's an organic form. It's green. It's slow. It's <laughs> settled. So mm-hmm. we just kind of wanted to share something in that spirit today. Is there anything else we should know before we decide to... Uh, end our show for today? Well, a great sort of example in the field would be in Japan, the Adachi Museum of Art, which has many different gardens as part of its campus. And they use the cloud forms there quite a bit. It is so versatile. It's really, it doesn't have to have an English look or Japanese look. It really could accompany any garden style. And it's this unifying element. And many of these plants, boxwood, holly, pedosporum, so the dwarf yopon holly, as weather gets more extreme, that's a plant which is native in Texas, amongst other places, that's very versatile. I mean, there's been projects I've been a consultant on or worked on. So the to get larger plants to assemble these cloud gardens is sometimes a challenge. So it's there can be an aesthetic one is going for, but finding the finding the certain species can be quite challenging. So like we've been called on to more or less take more or less raw nursery stock and and begin to develop it into a cloud garden. But to be very mindful is when it's more or less a monoculture, you're developing a garden with one species. Is it a plant that can sustain more extreme weather, blight? And there's definitely species that can do that. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for that. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Uh, Just part of the range of topics that we like to offer here on this podcast. Thank you for listening. Charles, anything else? Any final thoughts before we end today? Uh, let's see. I always like to cover a design principle, a new thing we're doing. So I think last week we talked about balance. And so uh, another design principle, proximity. So that's apropos <laughs> mm. in the current climate. So proximity, as shapes are at a certain distance, like imagine th- three circles. If they're close, they read as a group. There's a as they get further apart, they stop reading as a group. So that's, you can create movement in a garden. You can, it's, it's like, a, like a use of repetition. So the proximity, when planting a cloud garden, we have one started actually in our front yard with boxwood. So if they're, if they're further apart, they don't really read as a group. 
And so I know over time it will become a group. So that's really a design consideration. How close plants are, it's going to affect the way it feels, the way it reads. It might read as, why do you have these plants in your lawn? It doesn't look like a garden. And so for a more instant effect, plants can be closer together. So it does read. So it's, it's, a, it's a important element to understand and practice. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you again for tuning in to another week of In the Landscape. We're so grateful to all our listeners everywhere. Believe me, we're wishing you all the best during what seems to be a pretty tough time all around. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we think of our listeners a lot in every region of the world, um, and we're wishing you the best. So stay safe. Do get into the landscape if you can. Um, We know it's a, a restorative element to, if we if we can't be around other people, at least we can be around plants and mm-hmm. nature a little bit. And I think there's something helpful in that. Yeah, it's so, so restorative. Everybody's, everybody seems to be echoing the same thing. So if it is safe to do so and you have some access, we hope you're able to get into the landscape sometime soon. All the best. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.